Well, welcome listeners to 3CR and also to the Dogs Program. This is the Defence of Government Schools and we're here every week to defend and to promote public education. That's education, by the way, that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It's available to all children, teachers, parents and workers, employees. It should also be public in ownership and control, and uh, it is the only one that's publicly accountable, so it's the only one that should be publicly funded. We know none of that is the case, and at the moment in Australia, the private school interest reigns uh, supreme almost. It gets exactly what it wants while our public schools are underfunded. Now, um, we have a very full program for you, and we're going to start off with a Trevor Cobalt's uh, submission to the current um, report that's being written by the uh, people in Canberra, set up by Mr Albanese and Jason Clare, to look at the funding of education in Australia and the new schools agreement with the states, between the states and the Commonwealth over funding. Uh, the next school's agreement must embrace key principles for school funding, says Trevor Colborne. Now, Trevor still believes in the Gonski uh, needs policy. We don't. We think it's, it's uh, whatever happens, the private schools will gain the system. But uh, this is a very good historical view of what has happened to the needs policies in the last 10, 20 years. And Andy's going to lead off for us. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Save Our Schools, SOS, has called on the expert panel reviewing the National Schools Reform Agreement to recommend some key principles to guide the future funding of schools. These principles should include fully funding public schools by 2028, no special deals for private schools, a greater role for the Commonwealth in funding public schools, and an end to the defrauding of public schools by state governments. SOS has also recommended the panel adopt a target of halving class sizes in disadvantaged schools. These recommendations are outlined in the SOS submission to the expert panel. It says that the panel must consider the funding principles to guide the next NSRA. There is no justification for the claim that school funding is outside the terms of reference of the panel. Future funding principles are well within its terms of reference because the terms require the panel to consider how funding can be better linked to student outcomes. In part, the terms of reference ask the panel to ensure public funding delivers on national agreements. This necessitates some basic principles to guide future funding. Developing such principles would not transgress the Minister's edict that the panel should not review how the SRS is calculated. The key principles recommended by SOS are 1. Funding for public and private schools should be based strictly on a needs basis in order to deliver increased outcomes for students in the priority equity cohorts. 2. The Commonwealth Government should play a greater role in funding for increased equity in education. 3. The Commonwealth State Funding Agreements must ensure that both parties live up to their commitments and responsibilities to deliver equity in education. 4. Public schools should be fully funded at 100% of their SRS within the life of the next NSRA. 5. The integrity of the SRS must be maintained and not diluted. And 6. There must be increased reporting on target outcomes and the use of taxpayer funding. 
The submission also calls for the next NSRA to support halving class sizes in disadvantaged schools. And I'll just pass on to Dale for the next section. Well, we agree with all of those recommendations, excepting, of course, the first one. The funding for public and private schools should be based strictly on a needs basis. We think that a private schools should not be funded publicly at all because they are incapable of thinking on the needs policy, on needs basis. Their very, very raison d'etre is to select children on the basis of class, creed and ability to pay. Uh, they're not on about needs. They never have been, they never will be. Uh, it's only the public school system that is concerned with the welfare of disadvantaged children. But um, uh, over to Dale. Thank you, Jean. The Uh, The idea of funding for need. Yeah, the idea of funding for need. The panel is asked how to ensure that funding is better linked to outcomes. The focus of the inquiry on school outcomes for the priority equity cohorts implies strictly funding according to need. A key lesson from the history of the implementation of the Gonski funding model is that right from the outset it was only partially based on need and the model of funding according to need was disregarded by successive coalition governments in directing large increases in funding to private schools. This has contributed to the failure to improve outcomes for most of the priority equity cohorts and the failure to significantly reduce achievement gaps between rich and poor. The Gonski funding model was compromised from the beginning. In announcing the Gonski funding inquiry, the Labor government guaranteed that no school would lose a dollar under the new funding model. This ensured that private schools that were already overfunded under the old SES funding model got to keep whatever funding got to keep that funding under the new model. The no losers guarantee was described by one member of the Gonski panel as an albatross around their neck. The no school would lose a dollar guarantee was later replaced by every school would get an increase and that is what happened irrespective of need. As a result many schools were funded above what was warranted by their SES score. Prime Minister Gillard also made a secret deal with Catholic Church to guarantee Catholic schools would maintain their existing share of total school funding into the future. The deal was extended to independent schools. It was all about maintaining market share. At a time when some schools were clearly highly advantaged by special funding arrangements that had emerged over 50 years of lobbying and electoral blackmail, this deal undermined the principle of funding according to need. Funding should have been diverted from schools that had little need relative to achievement of national benchmarks, predominantly elite private schools and Catholic schools, to schools that were struggling to achieve good outcomes for larger numbers of disadvantaged students, predominantly public schools and a small number of generally sectarian faith schools. But the funding was not reallocated. The failure to fund schools according to need was compounded by another special deal for private schools conjured up between the new Morrison government and the Catholic Church after the church's ruthless campaign against the decision of the Turnbull government to terminate the lucrative system-weighted average funding for Catholic schools. There were two components of the peace deal. One was an additional $3.4 billion 
billion over 10 years to implement a new direct income method of assessing parental capacity to contribute to private schools. It replaced the previous measure of capacity to contribute based on the socioeconomic status of statistical areas. The key point here is the funding increase was announced well before the new measure of the financial need of schools was determined. It was a peace deal in search of a model to implement it and it took over a year to find it. The model that eventuated was fundamentally flawed. Despite being based on the taxable income of families with children in private schools, it ignored significant sources of family and school income. It ignored direct income support for families provided by grandparents and other relatives in the form of full or partial payment of school fees, deposits on house purchases, assistance with mortgage payments, childcare, household appliances and car purchase purchases, etc. Other exclusions from the assessments include 50% of capital gains not subject to taxation, income held in overseas bank accounts and tax havens and family wealth. As a result, the capacity of private school parents to pay school fees is vastly underestimated and the financial need of private schools is overestimated. Consequently, private schools are systematically overfunded by taxpayers. The current approach also ignores lucrative sources of income for private schools, such as donations and investment income. For example, 50 of the richest private schools in Australia raked in $611 million from these sources over five years from 2017 to 2021. Just 10 schools raked in nearly $300 million. None of this income is included in the assessment of the financial need of these wealthy private schools. The second component of the peace deal was a $1.2 billion handout for private schools called the Schools Choice and Affordability Fund. It had no basis in need and was not available for public schools. Numerous other special deals followed that extended the resource advantage of private schools. They include low growth funding for private schools and other transitional funding to the new funding method, drought assistance, COVID assistance, and most notably JobKeeper funding worth six worth $769 million. None of this funding was based on need. Much taxpayer funding has been wasted on overfunding private schools. On average, they're funded at over 100% of their SRS in every jurisdiction except the Northern Territory. Archbishop Anthony Fisher said that the Catholic school system had never had it so good in terms of funding. It has had little positive effect as the biggest declines in PISA results in recent years have been in Catholic and independent schools. It's allowed these schools to enhance their lavish educational and sporting facilities and to attract teachers and high performance forming students. These schools now have significant resource advantage over public schools. It's money that could have been used to support the achievement of equity goals by increasing funding of public schools. Public schools enrol about 80% or more of the priority equity cohorts and over 90% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. The sorry history of the sabotage of the Gonski vision for equity in education and its associated funding model, together 
with the continuing low achievements by the priority equity cohorts and the continuing large achievement gaps between them and high SES students demands that future school funding be determined solely by need. So the Commonwealth should have a key role in increasing equity in education. In another act of sabotage, the Turnbull government arbitrarily restricted Commonwealth funding of public schools to 20% of their SRS. By contrast, it also announced it would fund private schools to 80% of their SRS. It reverted to the historical approach whereby the Commonwealth has primarily has primary responsibility for funding private schools and the states have primary responsibility for funding public schools. The Gonski report was scathing about the structural incoherence of this arrangement. The report criticised the imbalance between the funding rep responsibilities of the Commonwealth and the states and the lack of coordination in funding schools. It envisaged a much expanded role for the Commonwealth in funding disadvantaged schools and students. This role was rejected by the Turnbull government. It gave priority to funding the more privileged private sector over funding disadvantaged students, the large majority of whom were in public schools. The federal government's role in public education stems from its responsibilities to improve equity in education, social cohesion and economic growth. It has special responsibilities relating to Indigenous Australians and migrants, which implies a key role in funding public education. While the states have prim primary constitutional responsibility for education, the national government has a responsibility to ensure that the rights of all citizens to a quality education are upheld. It has a responsibility to ensure that all children, whatever their background and wherever they live, receive an education to prepare them for full participation in the community as citizens. In upholding the democratic rights of all citizens, the national government has special responsibility to ensure that children who endure hardship due to poverty, location or cultural background have access to the benefits and privileges enjoyed by the rest of society, especially in relation to access to quality education. The national government cannot allow a diversity of state government provision of public education to result in children in some regions being denied an ad adequate education. If a state government decides by reasons of insufficient revenue, ideology or other reasons that some children cannot be supported to achieve the minimum level of education expected by society, then the national government has a responsibility to intervene. Similarly, children from different family backgrounds should be expected to achieve similar levels of education, whatever the state or territory in which they live. For example, Indigenous children living in the Northern Territory should be expected to achieve the same level of education as Indigenous children living in the ACT or Victoria. If a state government is discriminating against Indigenous children by not providing an adequate education, the national government has a responsibility to intervene. The same case applies to other disadvantaged students such as those from low socioeconomic status families and those living in remote areas. It's the responsibility of the national government to intervene in all circumstances where students are not achieving an adequate education and where there are large differences in the results of children from different social groups. In a federal system, the national government is the 
essential monitor and backstop to ensure that all Australian children receive a quality education to prepare them for adult life. For these reasons, the Commonwealth Government should play a greater role in ensuring equity education across the nation. This implies a greater role in funding public schools because they enrol the vast majority of priority equity cohorts and include 90% or more of all disadvantaged schools. While the precise shares for the Commonwealth and states will be sub subject to negotiations, Save Our Schools suggests that the Commonwealth take up an extra 5% share under the next NSRA. In this case, the split in funding public schools would be 25% Commonwealth and 75% state. So this is quite a long article, but I'll just pass back over to Andy for the conclusion. Thanks, Dale. Closing the huge achievement gaps between priority equity cohorts and high SES students is the most fundamental challenge facing Australian education. Very high proportions of students in priority equity cohorts do not achieve national standards in literacy and numeracy and are three to five years behind their high SES peers by the time they reach the upper secondary years. Over 80% of these students attend public schools and over 90% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. Yet, public schools remain massively underfunded and will remain so into the next decade unless the current arrangements are dramatically reformed. The next NSRA must address the multi-million funding shortfall in public schools. It is incumbent on the expert panel to recommend key principles to guide future funding to better support the learning of priority equity cohorts. There is no justification for the claim that school funding is outside the terms of reference of the panel. Future funding principles are well within its terms of reference. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, of course, the dog's position is that um, the, the needs policies have all been uh, gained and are nonsense. The only way forward is what you have in Finland, uh, where you don't have private schools funded publicly uh, and all, all, all schools are equally funded. There's just not a question. But what has happened since 1964, and certainly since 1978, is that the private schools are determined to not only uh, keep their market share, which was uh, only about um, 20%, 22% at the most, um, back in 1978, and was falling, uh, they want to keep their market share and increase it because now the public schools only have about 64 to 65% of children, but it's still by far and away the greatest the greatest percentage of children in their schools. So it's about market share and it's about uh, making sure that they are the superior schools, uh, certainly in resource-wise, and uh, regarding the public schools as a wastebasket system. Uh, so that's always been what the private schools have been about and the politicians have not been prepared to bite the bullet and tell them to go and jump in the lake they can't have hard-earned taxpayer dollars. But uh, that's the dog's position. However, thanks to Trevor Cobalt, who does absolutely marvellous uh, research work, and we'll have a bit of a break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
talk about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program. And we've got a really interesting story for you. Uh, the parents that send their children to private schools because they think they're better than public schools, of course, are. Uh, are um, very much mistaken. And uh, when they're members of the aspirational class and they can't afford the fees, they've got problems. We've heard in, in previous years how the Sydney private schools have gone after parents, even uh, made them mortgage their houses or lose their houses. But here in Melbourne, there's a very interesting private school that's suing a family over unpaid fees. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. This article is by Nicole Presell and Tom Cowie. It's about Melbourne private schools who are suing families over unpaid fees. So a family with children at a Melbourne private school is facing a legal battle over almost $300,000 in unpaid school fees as cost of living pressures raise concerns that more families will be pushed to the brink. Liebler Yavne College, a modern Orthodox Jewish school in Elstonwick, has filed court action against the parents of three children currently at the school whose fees have allegedly not been paid since 2019. In documents filed in the county court, college lawyers said parents whom the Sunday age has chosen not to name, refused or neglected to pay a debt of $298,839, which was a breach of their enrolment agreement. The board of Liebler Yavna College declined to discuss the case but said in a statement that the school was passionate about Jewish children having the right to a Jewish education. Given this, we maintain a compassionate, robust and confidential fee assistance program to support parents in paying for their child's tuition, the board said. Any step we take to recover outstanding debt owed to the college is done as an absolute last resort. The family at the centre of the case said it was a stressful time but declined to comment further on the legal matter. Court filings show the family has had children enrolled at the school since 2012, with fees billed quarterly and due at the start of each term. The family allegedly stopped paying in July 2019, and in May this year, Liebner Yavna College demanded payment. Federal court records show at least two other people have been tipped into bankruptcy by Liebner Yavna College since 2018, and another was taken to court in 2013. Supreme Court of Victoria documents revealed that Royton Girls School also pursued a father for $31,474.53 of unpaid school fees this year. 
Credit Clear Debt Collecting Agency Chief Executive Andrew Smith, whose business handles accounts for 30 of Melbourne's private schools, said 250 active Victorian accounts have been referred to it, totalling about $3 million in debt. Of those, 70 accounts had progressed to legal recoveries, with legal action being more frequent now than last year. He said $300,000 in outstanding fees was an extreme case. If schools let families accumulate such a large debt, they were taking on a bit of that responsibility by allowing those students to continue, Smith said. He said that most of the school fees cases he handled were for more were for amounts between $5,000 and $50,000. Common reasons for overdue accounts were divorce, business closure, parents moving a child out of school, and parents who disputed owing school fees. There's a similar amount of customers or students that have been referred to us compared to previous years, he said. What we're seeing is a dramatic uptick in the value of the debt. Smith believes some schools might have held onto debt longer because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now they're saying, well, we can no longer work with those parents. We need to do something about it. He said administrations and liquidation had spiked dramatically. In Victoria, there'd been a 39% increase in cases to 1,476 in the financial year ended June 30, compared to the previous year. For business owners with children in private schools, this was contributing to the default in payments and would only continue. The pressure on parents and schools is about to compound as 60 of Victoria's highest fee schools pay the state government's payroll tax from next year, leading some schools to raise fees. At Geelong Grammar School, Victoria's most expensive private school, fees increased 8% for 2024 to $84,240 for full-time Year 12 domestic boarding students. At Caulfield Grammar, fees have risen to $40,543 for Year 12 students and fees are $40,053 at Wesley College, a 6.75% jump. Smith believes that with such high fees, parents could quickly end up with large debts if schools did not intervene early. Only schools with fees higher than $15,000 a student are subject to the tax. Liebna Yavna College is not subject to payroll tax. Back to you, Jean. It's an interesting article for those of our listeners who have children at university or who are at university themselves. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Caitlin Cassidy, originally published in The Guardian, and is entitled, Why are university degrees in Australia getting more expensive? And how much will they cost? Pressure is mounting on the federal government to prevent ballooning course costs as figures reveal some humanities courses have become more than 140% more expensive in the past five years. The costs are a hangover from the previous federal government's controversial Job Ready Graduates, JRG, scheme, which brought wide condemnation from the sector. Data released by the Department of Education earlier this month shows fees for law, accounting, administration, economics, commerce, communications and society and culture degrees will jump to $16,323 a year from 2024. 
It's a $1,181 increase compared with 2023 and a $9,639 increase for society and culture courses since five years ago. In 2021, reforms were introduced by the coalition that changed the cost of degrees and moved society and culture courses to the same band as law and business. As a result, some humanities courses will have increased by 144.2% in 2024, while there has been a 46.3% increase for law, accounting, commerce, economics and administration. Contrastingly, education and nursing students are paying 32% less than five years ago, 4,445 compared with 6,000 566, as a result of greater Commonwealth contributions. Agriculture students are paying 53% less, 4,445, compared with 9,359, while medicine, dentistry and veterinary science degrees have faced increases of 16%, 12,720, compared with 10,958. Changes to the prices of courses are a result of reforms announced by the coalition in the first year of COVID-19, designed to incentivize students to study certain degrees, including science and engineering. The JRG scheme reduced the overall government contribution to degrees from 58% to 52%, and increased fees for some courses, including humanities, to fund fee cuts in other courses and add 39,000 extra university places. But data shows student contributions towards science degrees have only decreased marginally in the past five years, minus 4%, and Commonwealth funding has not kept pace. The Chief Executive of Universities Australia, Catriona Jackson, says the JRG scheme cut the average level of Commonwealth funding for student places while shifting the additional burden onto students and universities. We've been very clear that the JRG goes against the national interest and needs to be replaced as soon as possible with a system that is fairer for students and supports universities to educate the next generation, she says. The Education Minister, Jason Clare, says the architect of the Higher Education Loan Program, HELP, Professor Bruce Chapman, was assisting the Accord team with looking at the issue of affordability. Their interim report makes it clear that the previous government's JRG scheme hasn't worked, and it needs to be redesigned before it causes long-term and entrenched damage to the Australian higher education. He says, The Accord team is working on how to fix this and what other changes might need to be made, including the most appropriate way to reduce the volatility of the current indexation method. The team is due to hand down its final report in December. Luke Sheehy, the Executive Director of the Australian Technology Network of Universities, ATN, says changes need to come sooner. He says the body has always had concerns with JRG, citing inadequate Commonwealth funding rates and the ineffectiveness of price incentives to drive students to courses. While we hope the accord will result in a complete overhaul of the funding arrangements starting in 2025, We also know that every year is crucial to a strong pipeline of students, he says. Beginning in 2024, the full impact of JRG reforms will be felt as transition funding ceases. We have a duty to students studying now and a responsibility to address this issue as soon as possible. 
The chief executive of the Group of Eight Universities, Vicky Thompson, agrees. She says the scheme has been an abject failure that must be addressed as a matter of urgency. It has failed universities, students and research. In 2024, universities will receive less for teaching, engineering and science than they did in 2019, she says. When the indexed funding rate comes into effect next year, the Albanese government will already be halfway through its fixed term. We can't afford to go slow on this and put JRG reform off any longer. Changes to course costs have made minimal differences to the degrees students are choosing to study. Research has found course preferences still depend on student interests, and for financially motivated students, job and salary prospects have a greater impact than course costs. Perversely, the changes have actually incentivized universities to enroll more students in humanities degrees in order to subsidize the cost of science and STEM courses, which are more expensive to run. Ten universities, including UNSW, the University of Western Australia, the University of Queensland, and Western Sydney University, have dropped minimum entry ATAR requirements for arts degrees since the JRG was introduced in 2021. Sheehy says the way places are funded means for every $1 million of fixed Commonwealth funding, ATN universities can enrol 59 engineering students and science students, or 872 students studying society and culture. Commonwealth funding is capped, meaning at a certain threshold the university is losing money if it boosts enrolments in courses that are cheaper for students but more expensive for universities to run. The system puts meeting student and national demand for engineering and science skills at odds with offering opportunities for more students. It reduced overall funding to teach engineering and science by around 16% or $4,800 per student place. Funding shortfalls in those courses are hard to absorb and have significant impact on other priorities. While it does sound like a bit of a mess, doesn't it? Hope that gets fixed soon. Back over to you, Jean. Oh, yes. Uh, it's pretty, pretty uh, extraordinary, isn't it? And here we want to be the clever country. But um, our great and powerful Education Minister, Jason Clare, actually wants to have two bob each way with the private and the public schools or with the religious people and the non-religious people. And he's backing an advocacy group for the religious school chaplains in our secular state system. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this is an article from Cy Gladman, who is part of the Rationalist Society. The title is Education Minister Backs Advocacy Group for Religious School Chaplains. So the Albanese government's education minister, Jason Clare, has backed the establishment of a new friendship group that will promote religious-based chaplaincy and the interests of third-party providers that discriminate against non-Christians when hiring for youth worker jobs in public schools. Earlier this week, Mr Clare joined forces with Liberal politicians, including some who previously called for more funding for religious chaplaincy in public schools to help children overcome 
climate change anxiety for the launch of the new Parliamentary Friends of School Chaplaincy Group. Last year, Mr Clare announced changes to the federal government-funded program to allow public schools the option of choosing either a secular wellbeing officer or a chaplain with religious credentials to perform what are essentially youth worker roles. However, as the Rationalist Society of Australia has reported, some public schools have been pressuring their school communities to accept the continuation of religious chaplains. Youth Care, a provider that only hires Christians for the roles in Western Australia, yesterday published on its website an article and photos of the launch event, accompanied by a subheading, Friends in High Places Unite Over Student Wellbeing. Earlier in the week, the RSA reported that a number of Labor MPs, including Speaker of the House of Representatives Milton Dick, had joined with Christian MPs and Senators from the Liberal Party to support the establishment of the Friendship Group. Youth Care's Chief Executive Officer Tamson Cullingford attended the launch event at Parliament House in Canberra, where she also was pictured alongside Opposition Leader Peter Dutton. Now, last year, when asked by a city councillor in Western Australia whether youth care would employ a Muslim, Ms Cullingford said, we employ people who align with our values and that the people who tend to align with our organisation are Christians. While Mr Clare's National Student Wellbeing Program, the NSWP, is explicitly a non-religious program, a new report published by the RSA shows that religious discrimination remains a systemic feature of the operation of the program. Christian third-party providers continue to dominate the program and use selection criteria that include the need for candidates to be committed Christians and attend a local faith community. Youth Care describes its school chaplain as providing a sensitive Christian presence in educational communities. To become a chaplain in a public school through youth care, applicants must show a demonstrated capacity to sensitively relate the Christian faith in a secular context and must have demonstrated active engagement in the life of a Christian church. Among the backers of the new friendship group is Liberal MP Luke Howarth, who in 2021 wanted extra government funding for religious chaplains to help school children overcome climate change anxiety. When urged to keep religion out of public schools by a commenter to one of his social media posts this week, Mr Howarth responded, no, without people of faith, people would be a lot worse off. In another tweet, he said, chaplains engage in prayer as part of their job. Earlier this week, the RSA wrote to the principals and parents and citizens committees of three state schools in Queensland that did not give their school communities a fair choice of a secular well-being officer. In the letters, the Rational Society of Australia President, Dr Meredith Doig, urged the schools to conduct a new consultation process with their school communities to ensure respondents were properly informed as to the correct nature of the NSWP and to ensure that they have a real choice. The RSA has repeatedly warned Minister Clare and his state and territory counterparts that religious-based discrimination would remain a feature of the NSWP if long-established Christian labour hire firms continued to dominate the marketplace of providers.
So that was from Cy Gladman from the Rationalist Society of Australia. Scary stuff indeed. Separation of church and state? Not. What is going on, Mr Clare? Back to you, Jean. Well, we'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll have Jeff who will take us overseas. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Welcome back to the Dogs Program, and now Jeff is going to take us overseas. Thanks, Jean. And um, Donna Ravitch's blog we follow regularly in the States uh, has just written, an, uh, she's uploaded an article by Steve Hennifer talking about what happens when the private schools over there called the charter schools close. Often they fly by night as these, these charter schools, they open and shut fairly regularly um, in order to make profits. Um, and this is the this is an article from the second of October. Indiana blogger Steve Hinnefeld, she writes, reviews the damage left behind when charter schools close, often mid year. The possibility of a sudden closing is an unadvertised disadvantage of charters. If they don't have enough students, if there's a financial scandal, if lots of other things, the school abruptly closes, leaving students and parents to find another school. The charter school advocates think it's commendable when the schools close, as that is the market at work not so good for the students. He writes, regardless of what you think about charter schools, it's the bad news when one closes, it's bad news when one closes unexpectedly. It's bad for the staff. It's bad for the people who were committed to the project. It's especially bad for the students who will have to find a new school, learn their way around and make new friends. It's not a rare occurrence here in Indiana. A list provided by the Indiana Department of Education includes 50 charter schools that have closed or merged since Indiana Indiana began allowing charters in 2002. An analysis by Chalkbeat Indiana found at least 29 charter schools in Marion County have closed. The latest to fold was Vanguard Collegiate, an Indianapolis middle school that opened with big plans in 2018 but struggled to enrol students. It had only 71 students in grades 5 to 8 last year, according to Indiana's Department of Education data, and it was down to about 40 this, this fall. Vanguard announced two weeks ago in a letter to parents that it would close October 1st. Please know that we fought hard for you, our beloved school community, Executive Director Robert Marshall wrote. In January, another Indianapolis charter school, HIM by her, or him by her, closed abruptly, sending its 200 students scrambling with three months left in the school year. The school, which launched during the COVID-19 pandemic, was authorised by the Ball State University and operated for two and a half years. One charter school supporter commented online that Vanguard Collegiate shouldn't have been allowed to open in the first place. Ball State shouldn't have extended its charter last year and it shouldn't have been allowed to close mid-semester. Certainly the situation could have been handled better. The fact that the school, over five years, never managed to enrol 100 students 
should have been a red flag. It reported good attendance rates for a high poverty for a high poverty school, but its academic performance wasn't a, wasn't stellar. Only two of 61 test takers scored proficient on both the maths and English language arts I learned assessments in 2023. It's not clear what the school's board was doing about this, as board minutes haven't been posted to the school's website since June 2022. Then there was the school's most recent posted audit, covering 2021 school year and submitted to the State Board of Accounts in 2022. The audit concluded that substantial doubt continues to exist about the ability of the school to continue as a going concern. Nevertheless, the school's authoriser, the Indiana Charter School Board, approved a five-year extension of its charter late last year. If the board had rejected the renewal request, the school could have shut down in May in an orderly fashion and its students would have had the summer to find a new school. On the other hand, it might have gone shopping for a different authoriser. That's what happened with him by her. The Indiana Charter School Board rejected its initial application, but Ball State approved it. What happens to students when their schools close unexpectedly? Research is mixed, but there's strong evidence that switching schools has negative academic and behavioural impacts, especially on students of colour and students in low-income families like those at Vanguard and him by her. So it's just just these fly-by-night profiteers um, seem to have little care for the ongoing welfare of the students. They should all be enrolled in public schools. That's what we think here. Anyway, we're going to nip across to the UK, where we love a scandal. We do love a scandal. And this is another one uh, that the Tories have uh, imposed on education over there. This is an article from The Observer, but it's reposted by The Guardian. And it's by Anna Frazakali uh, from Sunday the 1st, October 2023. And it says, Revealed. UK government keeping files on education critics, social media, social media activity. An observer investigation finds the Department of Education tried to cancel conference with unsuitable speakers, and experts who criticised state education policy had online posts monitored. Um, now, the Department of Education is keeping files monitoring the social media activity of some of the country's leading educational experts, the observer can reveal. At least nine experts have uncovered files held on them, some as long as 60 pages. One individual even discovered the department had compiled an Excel spreadsheet in which officials had de- detailed who she, was intera- who she interacted with. Officials, officials at the Department of Education also tried to cancel a conference because two of the scheduled speakers had previously criticised government policy. Ruth Swales and Aaron Bradbury, co-authors of a best-selling book on, the, on early childhood, were told by the organisers of a government-sponsored event for childminders and nursery workers, which they were due to speak at in March, that the Department of Education planned to cancel the conference just days before it opened because they were deemed to be unsuitable headline speakers. The event was eventually allowed to go ahead after Swales and Bradbury threatened the department with legal action, although a senior government official was present to monitor what they said. Speaking to the Observer, Bradbury, a principal lecturer in early childhood studies at Nottingham Trent University, said, I received a phone call from the organisers saying there were some concerns about us being speakers. The DfE had decided we were unsuitable because we had been critical of government policy. He said, To be told that we couldn't have this debate felt like we were living in a dictatorship, not a democracy. We were due to talk about nurturing and early child development. 
It wasn't some covert stuff about infiltrating Russia. Swales, an independent consultant who advises schools and nurseries on early years education, was so shocked that she filed a subject access request requiring the DfE to disclose any documents it held on her. The results, which she received at the end of summer, revealed that the department had kept a file on her. I gather that this is uh, uh, very similar to a Freedom of Information request. It included critical tweets that she had posted about Ofsted, England's school's inspectorate, and noticed that she had liked posts promoting guidance on on teaching young children that was written by educationists rather than the government. She said, They have tried to silence me. What they did could have ruined my livelihood and still has the potential to. In support of Swales, many other education experts who are known for challenging the government have now requested similar information about themselves. At least nine individuals have received what they describe as some often very lengthy files on their views and social media activity. Some, including head teachers and university academics, are still waiting for responses. Dr Pam Jarvis, a former teacher and education psychologist who is now retired from Leeds Trinity University, said that her request had returned more than 40 pages of records in which officials had monitored her tweets, focusing in particular on her criticisms of the department's controversial new baseline assessments for four-year-olds in their first term at school. She said, "'Discovering they have been monitoring me makes me effing furious, but it also makes me more inclined to go on doing it. They should know I will speak up like this until I'm dead.'" One modern languages expert, Carmel O'Hagan, uncovered an email from DfE officials accusing her of having an axe to grind on Twitter, now rebranded as X, and an Excel spreadsheet in which the department detailed who she interacted with. She described the emails among officials about her in her 37-page file as puerile and spiteful. Dr Ian Cushing, a senior lecturer in critical applied linguistics whose subject access requests revealed that both DfE and Ofsted were monitoring him, said, what is deeply troubling to me is the fact that they spend substantial amounts of time and money in these surveillance procedures at a time when schools are being hit by economic difficulties and cost of living crises. Sue Cowley, an education expert who runs training for schools, tweeted her response to the records she had been sent under her name this week. Excuse my language, but what WTAF... Are the DfE doing spending taxpayer money conducting surveillance on critics of government policy on here? When asked why the government had been compiling files on the social media activity of its critics, the Department of Education said it did not comment on individual cases. As well, they may not. Anyway, uh, that's me now. That's the article. But um, how how amazing that the... <laughs> so brittle, uh, the Tory... Uh, uh, departments, in this case the education department, that they have to keep track of anyone who says anything bad about them or their social media policies or their, or their, or their education policies and they keep track of people who might have something to say about the matter. Goodness me, um, Ministry of Truth stuff. Anyway, with all that exciting uh, scandal erupting in the, in the UK, adding to the um, previous stuff with the concrete. Um, I'll return it to you, Jean. Thank you very much, Jeff. And now we get to the best part of the program, our great state school. Over to you, Andy. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment 
to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Omeo Primary School. This is a statement from the website by the principal. Omeo Primary School has been established since 1866 and celebrated its 150th anniversary in 2016. Our long history in providing education in the Victorian high country to numerous children is something they are proud of. The school population is diverse, with many children travelling by bus from Dinner Plain, Benambra and Omeo Valley. Omeo Primary School's values of respect, inclusion, persistence, enjoyment and excellence underpin how they work together as a learning community to support student aspirations, learning and behaviour. At Omeo Primary School, they strive to create a learning environment where staff, families and students work together to provide the best opportunities for all students. Each child is unique and learns differently. As a school, they provide for these differences and equip students with skills, attitudes and values which allow them to be confident and compassionate participants in a global world. Omeo Primary School is part of the Far East, Lakes and High Country Network and takes an active role in the professional development which is part of this group. Video conferencing is used by staff to access personal development, professional development and to support students with their learning. The school has a strong partnership with Omeo District Health and neighbouring schools. They participate in the School as Hubs program developed between the schools to improve outcomes in the early years. The school is fortunate enough to enjoy well-maintained historic sections complemented by recently refurbished modern classrooms incorporating the use of ICT. Student learning is supported by magnificent facilities including, but not limited to, a purpose-built art room, extremely well-resourced library, large undercover sports area, well-maintained oval and extensive grounds benefited to the school over the years by the efforts of dedicated school council and active parent club members. The newest improvement is the Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics STEM Centre. This houses a student-friendly kitchen and a dining area that supports the kitchen garden. The school utilises its location to provide endless opportunities for rich extracurricular activities. There's a well-established ski program during the winter term and the summer sees students participate in a two-week intensive swimming program. Camps are a key feature of the educational experience for students in years three to six. Students participate in a wide range of inter-school sporting activities and on occasion joining with Swifts Creek to form a combined high country team. Parents are invited to become partners with teachers in developing positive educational outcomes for their children. Involvement in all aspects of the school operation is welcomed and encouraged. Parents are involved in supporting classroom programs, the school's committee structures, curriculum programs, the library and development of facilities and resources. This school treasures its history and community uniqueness and balances this with the need to prepare children to be successful in wider society. Omeo Primary School is a community school with a strong sense of ownership and pride. Now here's the facts and figures from Akara. The school has 37 pupils. The Ixia value of the school is 1,019, just above the average of 1,000. This is a small, intimate country school. 22% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 19% in the second highest, 31% from the third quartile, and 30% from the poorest 25% of the community. 3% of the pupils speak a language other than English, and 5% are of Indigenous parentage. 
It costs the taxpayer $24,000 to educate a student at this small country school. The school receives only $164,000 from the federal government and $605,000 from the state government, $18,000 from fees and about $27,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have only been $26,000. This public and private money is money well spent. This is a happy country school with a long history of service in this community. Congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Omeo. Well, thank you very much. That sounds like a lovely school, doesn't it? But um, our time has gone, so it's now up to me to thank Dale and uh, Andy and Sorrel and Jeff for all their work. And uh, we have a website that you may like to visit at www.adogs.info. But from all of us here at 3CR on this lovely Saturday day, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe. Says, killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.